Hello and welcome to Techno Social. This is the first half of our interview with Ian McGilchrist. He's a psychiatrist and writer. He wrote a book called The Master and His Emissary about the right and the left hemisphere of the brain and how they produce two different but overlapping ways of looking at the world. We spoke about uh, political conversation and social conversation, how they seem to be stifled in academia at the moment, and related this to how the left hemisphere seems to become dominant in many of the ways we think about ourselves and the world. Pretty interesting conversation. I uh, hope you guys enjoy it. Hope you guys enjoy it. Thank you for coming on the podcast, Ian. Um, so I first encountered you really about a month ago at the Rebel Wisdom Summit in London, which I think to kind of try and sum it up was it was a day kind of about trying to identify what are some of the kind of deep problems we're facing in culture at the moment below the kind of political layer going quite, quite down and trying to identify what may be some solutions um, and you were one of the panelists there, right? Um, I was wondering if you could give just a bit of a brief introduction to who you are and your thought and perhaps why you were on that panel that day. <laughs> um, I'm a psychiatrist, now retired. Um, I reached that by a circuitous path uh, because uh, the first thing I did after graduating from uh, university was to get a fellowship at an Oxford College which allowed me to study what I really wanted to do, which was philosophy and psychology. Um, I'd done a degree in English. Um, and um, I, I, I came to the idea that the most interesting thing to do would be to study medicine, because uh, I was fascinated by the mind-body problem. And it seemed to me that without immersing myself in that business, I wouldn't be able to address that. So all my life, I've really been addressing um, philosophical questions from one or other of an angle, probably from a broader than conventional angle, because I have brought together or tried to bring together what I know about neuroscience with um, my long-standing philosophical and literary interests and loves. Um, I suppose I was invited onto that panel because um, a lot of us feel that there are many things that should be discussed frankly um, that simply can't be discussed frankly anymore uh, because the conversation gets shut down. Um, and uh, so the idea was to create a relatively um, benign atmosphere in which such things could be talked about and that we could really try to break a bit of new ground that doesn't get discussed. I personally feel that in my lifetime, I'm sorry, I'm going to sound like an old fogey, but it's one of the privileges of having seen a bit, is that <laughs> over my life, um, intellectual freedom has uh, been narrowed um, and is in danger of disappearing, actually. Uh, when I grew up, there was a, a really optimistic feeling that you could say anything, 
you could talk about anything. Um, it really was a very rich, open field of debate. But now through all kinds of, I suppose, initially well-meaning uh, manoeuvres, uh, conversations are simply getting closed down and things that really must be discussed aren't. Mm -hmm. I suppose I'm particularly in spiritual things, but there are a lot of psychosocial issues at the moment that are narrowing down academic debate. So that's really uh, where I come from. Um, I, I don't really see myself as either wise or a rebel, but it was nice to be invited. <laughs> <laughs> it was great to hear you speaking. Um, so when you talk about the narrowing of the conversation, are you talking about kind of within, say, academia or within public discourse, or is it more broad? Um, did you find when you were younger that conversations amongst just friends and family were more open than they are now, for example? That's a good question. Um, I think probably yes. Uh, although one of the interesting things that alerts me that there is a problem is that many people will say things in private that they just wouldn't say in public. Mm. And I don't think it's too far-fetched to say that there is now something a little like, um, obviously the consequences are, are different, but they can be almost as dire as speaking out um, if you were living in Eastern Europe um, between the uh, Second World War and the fall of the, the wall. Um, people had to say things in private um, and you would find there was a huge discrepancy between that and what was publicly pronounced. I think that that's an unsustainable situation. I happen to believe that truth matters mm -hmm. and truth is sometimes not what people want to hear, but it, it really does matter and that a society that doesn't pay attention to truth and doesn't in good faith actually wish to listen to truth is, is not viable. Mm. So why do you think this is happening? Well, I think that's a very interesting question. Um, I often ask myself, I'm not really sure. I have a number of ideas though. I think what it's a response to the collapse of um, a lot of the things that make up a culture. Um, and these are not anybody's fault. Um, they are part of the process of technicalizing, technologizing um, the way in which we work, so that the sort of things that used to give people a sense of a context and knowing who they were and where they belonged have been gradually eroded. Mm. This is partly to do with um, internationalism, with multiculturalism, with um, erosion of sexual roles and all these things which you know I don't want to get into a huge argument <laughs> about it because I have a very moderate position myself which is that all these things should change all these things evolve there's no such thing as fossilizing things but on the other hand sometimes um, you can make far too radical theoretical changes in things that everybody knows and don't really correspond to reality. And that's left everybody with a feeling, who am I? Where do I belong? What, what, you know, all the things that gave you an identity before have been gradually eroded. And I think one of the things that appeals to people um, going up to university, say, and not really sure, perhaps to some extent, why they're doing that. Maybe it's because it seems like the next thing to do. 
um, and everyone else is doing it, um, <clears throat> they rally to a flag. And mm -hmm. I do think there's a lot of sort of rather simplistic discourse, um, which is natural because it stems from simple theoretical um, espousal of ideas that haven't been tested either by a society to see whether they work or tested by individuals against experience because a lot of this comes out of um, you know relatively young minds and <laughs> again sorry about this I'm a great believer in in young people's minds because they're where the future comes from um, in the past young people were more rebellious and more able to um, not not yet have been tramlined really by by the the process of academe if they were academics into thinking in certain ways so that you mm -hmm. find that a lot of great discoveries particularly in maths and science were made by relatively young people who not yet had the full weight of the con conventional um, uh, system on their shoulders but now it's slightly different and young people are themselves the guardians of of what is what passes what is all right what is not all right what you know and they've become hyper conventional um leaving those who think that there's always more to say on any question because nothing is so simple that it can be summed up in a soundbite mm. um leaving that somehow without um uh, a, a way of entering into this conversation which could be made richer and deeper i think mm. I mean, I can remember growing up and being at that sort of age you've spoken about going towards university and feeling like I needed to find an ideology. I needed to find a a kind of political team to be on and bouncing yes. about between loads of them and being really frustrated that it seemed that other people around me did have teams and I couldn't find one. And and then it all kind of switched and I realized, oh, maybe that's the point. Maybe that none of these, like, there is no total answer that I can just find to and not have to ask any questions for myself. Um, but I do wonder if that's something that many of us go through is... Oh, yeah, yeah. And look, when I was young, there was plenty of that too. I'm not... Um, every generation approaches this in a different way. I mean, when I was young, um, a lot of people were Marxists. Mm. Um, and the fact that wherever you looked in the world where people had tried Marxism, it had not been a vast success, let us say, in some cases led to imprisonment, torture and death of millions of people, um, never seemed to shake anybody's uh, <laughs> um, belief that this was clearly the way forward. And, and here I'm talking about, as in all these cases, a popular version of Marxism. Uh, in Marx, there are things that are, in fact, rather valuable. And, uh, but that's really not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a kind of um, a popular movement, really. And that's what we see now. Instead, it, it's not Marxism now, it's other things. Um, but it's, you know, there it is. I think that the point about um, education should be that it shakes your convictions, not confirms them. It, it, we should all, in fact, be testing our convictions all the time. I think the habit of questioning all the things you believe to be true is very important. And I believe that in education, it should not be possible, in fact, for people to leave school without having been taught how to um, turn things on their head, really. Uh, in other words, to be able to argue a case and then 
to be able to turn round and argue the opposite case uh, as, with as much conviction as possible, and as it were, to be um, to be scored, to be found um, excellent in the degree to which you're able to do that, because there always is another side um, mm. to whatever we say. And, and all I would say is that we seem to have lost balance. Everything in life is about balance. That was terribly boring. But harmony and balance are really, really, really important. They're not about going soft somewhere in the middle with some sort of squashy compromise. Because I remember also when I was young, I hated the idea of compromise. I thought this is just some kind of lazy, wishy-washy way of not really espousing anything. <laughs> um, I, I know... I now can see how incredibly wrong that is, not only because some compromises, which are genuinely just listening to two halves or something and trying to synthesize something better, is very important, but, but often the position is not a kind of, it's not a midway point. It's like believing that two things that seem to conflict can both be true. Mm. Um, in other words, being pulled in two directions rather than just going like a string that's taut rather than a string that's gone slack, if I may put it that way. Mm. And it's from a string that's taut that music comes, you know, from a string that is slack, nothing comes. So actually being able to not fly from contradictions um, by trying to deny one or the other. Um, the, the work that I'm doing now seems often to circle around this issue that we there are people who think, well, consciousness and matter can't really, um, I, I can't see how they relate to one another. And in fact, very few people who've ever lived could, so that's all right. But um, there has been a reaction to that, um, as I'm sure you're aware, in some philosophers to deny the existence of consciousness or to deny the existence of matter. Each of these seems like a pretty much a non-starter, um, particularly the former. Um, since in order to deny consciousness, you've got to use consciousness both to, to say it and to appreciate it. And if it's said to be an illusion, it's got to be an illusion in somebody's consciousness. In any case, uh, these things need to be held together. And, you know, we need to hold together what we see as black and white, because by doing that, we will discover the good in a position we have neglected. Mm. I think... When I was... Go on. I was going to say, um, when I was um, studying English, I was lucky enough to have a very good tutor, John Bailey, who was uh, who's sort of better known as the husband of Iris Murdoch, but but was in fact a, a brilliant um, writer. And he uh, used to say, "Okay, everyone, you know, everyone says X about this this writer. Let's try standing it on its head. Let's take the exact opposite position and to see if we can find evidence for it. And amazingly, one often could. And one realized that one had been sort of pushed into a stereotypical view. Um, and that was a huge eye-opener for me, mm. that you must invert the things you think are so important and see what comes of it. There we are. Enough of that. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, do you think it's this sort of what we're seeing like narrowing of um sort of i don't want to say free speech but narrowing of like the what is considered acceptable in the debate and acceptable in the cultural sphere um do, do you think that's the emergence of a new kind of cultural orthodoxy of some kind because you know I think if you look all throughout history there have been all kinds of cultures that have been based on lies and that have actually gotten 
a very long way and made all kinds of massive achievements on the basis of what anyone from a you know historical perspective now can see is you know really not very true is this maybe the emergence of just sort of another an, another one of those another sort of a grand cultural myth that a lot of people live around for a while and that like all previous cultural myths eventually gets dropped and replaced or or is this the beginning of maybe like sort of a newer era where like the nature of cultural sort of or the nature of the general like psyche around things like this changes Yes, it's a, it's a good question. Um, I think there are one or two things that are different. One is uh, brought about by social media. Um, and that is the, the danger that something that you say will, which is inevitably very, going to be a very short soundbite because that's the nature of social media, will be taken out of the context of a much um, more sophisticated um, position and treated to people who don't know anything about you or what you really said and you suddenly become um, at the target of a, a sort of um, artificially whipped up rage and of self-righteousness. I think people, there's an enormous amount of narcissistic self-righteousness involved um, in, in all this and I think that social media plays its part in that. There's nothing we can do about it, but it wasn't true in the past. I mean, you could say something in, in, in a seminar room in Oxford and um, there was no way that that could be disseminated very fast. Uh, somebody might write a letter to a friend saying, I heard somebody say, but it's quite different, as you can see, from the way in which millions of people can suddenly be confronted with a phrase out of context. So there are terrors there. I think... Other things have changed. That academia, which since its founding, really in the in the late Middle Ages, um, in 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 France and Italy and and England and Germany, um, has for the first time started to become a foe to free speech. Now that only happened under the Weimar regime in Germany for a while, but otherwise it hasn't happened. It happened in Eastern Europe under the communists. But it's extremely bad that it's happening now. I think it's an utter disgrace that anyone should be no platformed. One of the things that's happening is that we're no longer focused on the how, but only on the what. And this is something, another theme that I commonly recur to, um, which, we, which we neglect. It's really part of the theme of my book, The Master and His Emissary, is that the manner in which something is approached and how it is said and in what context it is discussed makes a huge difference. Mm. My own view is that provided um, things are said in good faith and in a way in which one is willing to be, to be contradicted and to be discussed with in a, in a civilized way, um, nothing should be off limits. Um, in fact, it might be rather good if, if there were some limits on the language that can be used. I, I don't like to hear myself say this because it's another kind of um, authoritarianism, if you like, a control. But actually, in everybody's interest, it, it would be good if it were not permitted to speak in the way that we now commonly speak to one another over, um, it, over the Internet. 
Of course, it's a very false situation because you're not face to face with anyone anymore and you can be anonymous. And so your behavior is no longer controlled by all the things that used to be a break on um, such uh, a process. Not just a break on it, but would also humanize it because you'd actually see a human being in front of you and you'd see their reaction. Whereas it can now be done, as it were, in a, in a, in a sort of vacuum in which you're protected. Um, from everything, from seeing the reaction, from understanding there is a human there, and from the um, the fallout of what you've just done. So I don't think anything much would be lost by that if it were practical, because there is never a need to be offensive. So I think those have changed, and I think also it is rather unusual for young people to be the masters of the orthodoxy, and I'm not sure that it's good for them or good for us. Um, I, I remember hearing Rory Sutherland saying at a conference um, something rather interesting that um, when he was young, um, the students war, uh, were at war, as it were, <laughs> with the faculty because they were testing new ideas, they, they, uh, they, they objected to what their, um, their seniors were saying, that's fine. Um, but they didn't close down conversations. Now, instead, uh, instead of being sort of rebellious young people, they are ultra-orthodox, and if they feel offended or hurt, they, they sort of run rather like small children to the skirts of, of mummy, saying, I, I feel offended and hurt, protect me. And now it seems that the job of the um, intellectuals that are, in, in, in many ways, the guardians of our culture, in the universities are reduced to um, the, the task of comforting people um, against anything that might um, not be the way that they already think. Now, that might be a bit of a caricature, I, I, I accept that, but it's not too far from being um, having some element of truth in it, I think you'll recognize. So that I think all those things are slightly different from anything we've quite seen before. And I think that partly it's um, a consequence also, if I may, um, talk about the dread hemisphere hypothesis. Um, <laughs> uh, Please. <laughs> part of my idea here is that our culture has become dominated by um, the way in which the left hemisphere sees the world, which is a different way of seeing it from the right hemisphere, uh, as I suggest in my book. Not that there's something wrong with it, but it must always be kept in balance, as I say, with um, another point of view, which is that of the, the right hemisphere. And, you know, some of the features of that way of thinking are that they are quick and dirty, black and white, either or, um, putting things into categories rather than seeing them as unique, taking them out of context, um, robbing them of any kind of deeper meaning. Um, and so one can see, if you like, and I can see anyway, I think, that this phenomenon we're discussing is part of a general coarsening of the intellectual realm of discourse, uh, which I, I make out is, is uh, just another aspect of the way in which this left hemisphere take on the world has come to dominate mm -hmm. over one that is nuanced, more implicit, more contextual, more emotionally um, intelligent, more socially um, sophisticated, and it's not good for us. It's part of the same mindset that is oddly 
um, the one that is ravaging the physical world, destroying nature, destroying species, destroying ancient cultures of people that we call primitive. Um, and so, curiously, the same mindset that is that I know what I want and I'm going to grab it and get it, which has made us powerful but stupid and enabled us in 200 years um, to more or less uh, put in danger, well, seriously to put in danger, the future of life on the planet through being selfish is also part of the mindset I'm deploring that turns what should be um, subtle uh, and um, flexible debate of issues that are important intellectually and socially into things that are larger caricatures. Mm. I, I was watching the documentary The Divided Brain the other day and one of the things that you said that struck me was that we behave like clinical patients who have suffered right hemisphere damage. What does that look like in a clinical context, eh? And then how can we map that onto what we look like? Well, there, there's a lot of things that happen when people have um, damage to the, the right hemisphere rather than the left. It's an interesting topic because until very recently, people knew most about what happened when there was damage to the left hemisphere because it was very obvious. Um, when you have damage in the left hemisphere, for most people, this will mean uh, affecting their speech and affecting the use of their uh, dominant hand, their right hand, which is controlled by the left hemisphere. So that looks pretty important. And by comparison, people who have right hemisphere strokes don't usually have difficulty um, in such areas. But the fascinating thing, and which I'm making much clearer in the book that I'm currently working on, is that what happens when you have damage to the right hemisphere is that the whole world changes and becomes incomprehensible. When you have damage to the left hemisphere, you have difficulty in using the world, speech and the right hand with which we grasp things, but you don't have difficulty understanding it. You understand it perfectly well. But if you have damage to the right hemisphere, what happens is there's difficulty understanding the world, making sense of it. And there are fascinating, um, intriguing and in some ways imaginatively exciting um, syndromes, which are very sad for the people who suffer from them, but are very striking. And some of them have been written about by um, uh, Oliver Sacks. Famously, he, he you know, wrote uh, descriptions of people who had largely right hemisphere deficit syndromes. But examples would be um, simply denial. One of the key things about the left hemisphere, it denies that there's anything wrong. It's very cut and dried, and it will simply deny reality if it doesn't fit with its idea that it is fine, and that there is nothing wrong with it. It sounds and like so, British culture. Yeah. <laughs> sounds like... Sorry, sounds like... Uh, it sounds like British people. I'm fine. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, it it, it, well, I think it sounds like, um, you know, modern Western society, full stop. And you can get somebody who has, for example, a paralyzed arm, and they just simply can't move their left arm after the right hemisphere stroke. 
um, and you can come and see them and, and, and say, is everything all right? And they'll say, yes, fine. And you say, oh, that's very good. Any problems, uh, for example, moving your left arm? No, none at all. You, well, could you move it for me then? And they say, there, you see. And um, you, nothing actually moves. If you bring the arm right round in front of the person and say, now, look, could you move that for me? They say, oh, that, that's not my hand. That belongs to the bloke in the next bed. So these are, these are not people who are mad. These are people who simply can't believe there's anything wrong with them. The left hemisphere is always Mr. Right. Um, <laughs> and it has, it, it, a piece of research was done for, for in, in, a, in a way that I don't need to go into, but prior to neurosurgery, you can in fact knock out one hemisphere for 15 minutes or 20 minutes at a time. Um, to make sure which hemisphere speech is in if, if you're operating on somebody because it's not entirely obvious. Um, in 97% of right-handers it's in the left hemisphere but in 60% of left-handers it's still in the left hemisphere and 40% in the right. So you just do this test. And um, during this test uh, somebody had the bright idea of asking patients to fill out a personality inventory about themselves and they gave the same personality inventory to these people's friends and relatives. And so for each, each patient, they had one inventory filled out by the person's right hemisphere and the other filled out by their left hemisphere. Wow. And it turned out that the left, left hemisphere had a very much inflated idea of its own excellence and importance. And the, <laughs> the right hemisphere had a somewhat um, pessimistic view of its strengths. Um, but was much closer to reality. So uh, you can see these things, and um, th there's also evidence that from David Hecht, uh, who's done a very nice review of the literature, um, uh, senior lecturer at UCL, um, showing that, that in terms of morality, the left hemisphere tends to be um, somewhat psychopathic, selfish, um, its behavior is antisocial, um, whereas by comparison, the right hemisphere's behavior is more um, pro-social. So these are all interesting things. People who have right hemisphere strokes can't understand um, implicit meaning. They take everything very literally. Um, and this, I don't want to be disrespectful to um, Americans uh, who are very kind to me and uh, whom I'm very fond of, but I did notice with great shock that when I first went to live in America in 1992, um, things that seemed to me obviously not meant to be taken literally were always taken literally. And people would look at, I'd say something, and people would look at me and they'd go, really? And then I'd say, no, not really, but never. <laughs> not really. At the time, at the time, I just thought, well, golly, what is this? And then I realized this is part of the future, because in America, you always see what is going to hit us very soon. Um, and if you want to know what's happening in five years' time, look at America. So, and that has happened here. Um, people, uh, people take things literally. They don't understand what is meant by things you have not said. Uh, sometimes it's the things that you don't say or you only imply that are every bit as important as what you do say. And the context in which you say them changes them. So there are many things. There are things that really matter to us most in life, I think. Um, starting with things like being in love, um, uh, having a, a, a sexual relationship, 
um, enjoying humour, enjoying poetry and music, um, and for many people, their spiritual or religious beliefs. None of these is, is well understood by making it entirely explicit, taking it out of context and putting it under the spotlight of the left hemisphere's attention. The left hemisphere has this very narrow beam attention. People who have a right hemisphere stroke literally only attend to a tiny part of the world at a time. It's not that they can't see things, it's that they're not attending to them. And so they have narrow focus on one thing, is the thing that they know about that they want at that moment. But they don't see the whole of the rest of the picture. Now you can see by analogy how important that is, that when we get locked onto, this is what I, I know, this is what I want, all the other stuff that changes its meaning by contextualizing it gets lost. So this is a very dire state of affairs for an individual. And if it turns out that as a society we're getting more like this with ever more explicit procedures, um, we're losing something. And of course this is accelerated by, um, by interaction with technology because increasingly um, it's cheaper for people to uh, set up machines to deal with human beings and their problems and their requests than actually to pay for expensive humans to do it. The trouble is that a machine simply can't understand most human problems, really what you're getting at, and you have to uh, make very crude um, decisions about how you're going to present or distort, in fact, and indeed misrepresent what you're really saying in order to fit in with the algorithm that is currently on the web page you are trying to negotiate in order to reach certain certain outcome. Um, and not infrequently, I find myself having to make up material because I I'm not allowed to leave the page until I've answered a question that simply there is no answer to that makes any sense at all. So this is a process which is getting extreme now. And we're also being monitored more by machines, as I know you know. Um, the extreme case of this is the social credit system in China where people have a maximum score of 800 points and these points carry privileges and every single thing that they do uh, gains points or loses points. So everything they write, of course all their emails are monitored, everything they post online, every image they put up, every conversation they have is monitored. Um, they have the most sophisticated facial recognition systems in the world with very many more cameras even than we have in public places so they can map where you go, who you talk to um, and what you buy in shops. So for example if you buy alcohol you lose points, apparently if you buy nappies you gain points, I'm not quite sure why. And um, in, in this state of affairs, what lose points? You can't, um, your children can't get an education. You can't take transport out of your town to anywhere else in China, never mind in the world. Um, you, you can only rent in certain parts of the town. Um, and you become a, a, a pariah, you become a leper. Because of course, as soon as you start to lose points, no one else wants to be seen with you or to communicate with you because they will start to lose points too. Now you might say, and people do say, that's, just China, isn't it? Um, that couldn't happen here. But that is another ignorant left hemisphere type la 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 remark. <laughs> because it's already already happening here. 
Um, the system called Predictim in America does precisely this. I don't think they've yet got access to everyone's emails, although I don't know whether they might not through um, the sort of technological chicanery that is open to um, uh, high-tech companies these days. But they can certainly monitor all your public behavior, all the things that you post online. And it gives you a score, and companies are hiring and firing on the basis of it. Now, the really pernicious thing here is that you cannot say to predict them. And in China, you cannot say to the authorities, why do I have a score that is so low? Because they can honestly turn around and say, we don't know. The computer has assessed all the data and come to this conclusion. But of course, a computer can't tell the difference between a young person's sense of humor, its remarks that are sarcastic, its necessary um, uh, espousal of unusual and extreme positions, because once young people stop doing that, it's all up with the future of humanity. Um, it's part of how one learns about life. None of this can be taken into account by a computer. So we are really in the position of having created computers that will control and destroy our humanity. I, this is something that worries me very, very greatly, as you can imagine. Mm. Well, that's kind of the classic problem of um, <clears throat> do the humans control the technology or does technology control the humans? And that, you know, that goes back as far as even if you look at, say, when we were domesticating plants and animals for the first time, like, did we really domesticate wheat? Or did the wheat domesticate us? Because the wheat, all the wheat did was, 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 you know, submit to some sort of like selective breeding and become, you know, more, have some more seeds for the humans to, to harvest. We went from being semi-nomadic hunter-gatherers to sedentary farmers over the course of thousands of years for the sake of the wheat. So in a way, this could be seen as sort of the conclusion of a very long process of humans kind of building the next sort of step in, I guess, possibly even the whole process of life. If you look at from sort of bacteria that have now evolved into, I mean, say, I guess a good example would be whales that are massive animals that eat all the krill, which themselves eat the, eat the um, what's it called, the bacteria in the ocean. They, they themselves eat bacteria that very much, plankton, that's it, that, you know, very much resembles sort of the original original life back when there was only single-celled organisms. It's kind of the same thing. Like uh, the, the, the newer forms of life are sort of built by and then overtake the older ones. And in this case, it seems that the newer form of life is, I guess, just the culmination of technology, essentially, that we've, we've outpaced biological evolution and now we've, now we've sort of embraced intellectual evolution. But in that embrace of intellectual evolution, do you think maybe we've, 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 we've reached a point where humans themselves may soon be obsolete? Well, of course they can never be obsolete because it's a mistake to think that machines have intelligence. What they have is what has been externalized by a handful of intelligent geeks in a place in California and a place in China and so forth as a way of looking at the world. And it has then been instantiated in um, a piece of technology. 
It, you're right that we are always, uh, as all organisms are, in constant dialogue with the environment, and that is as it should be. Uh, if we radically alter the environment, we radically alter ourselves, and this is an inevitable process. Um, there are arguments, I'm not sure I would um, either deny them or want to promote them, that would say that uh, the whole process of settling and becoming an agricultural people was um, a dangerous step. Um, in essence, yes, we did lose some of the freedoms that we had as hunter-gatherers, who may still be seen as holding certain kinds of wisdom that we have forgone about the world. But there's no doubt that we wouldn't have many of the things that are undeniably very beautiful, very intellectually rewarding and, and very special about a civilization. But something very new has happened here. It's partly to do with pace and it's partly to do with self-reference. Um, in other words, self-referential loops uh, of enormous speed are now in operation. Um, and it's not that, as it were, the machines are taken over, but just that I'm not sure that we any longer have time to interrupt these loops or indeed the will to do so um, if it seems that it might involve compromising on goods. Um, and there are ancient myths, of course, in every culture about the seductive things that happen when you become greedy and what you lose. And we may just be about to enact one of those myths. One way I would put the problem that you referred to of um, the technology and who is in control of it would be that we have suddenly and very rapidly externalized the workings of the left hemisphere. One of the differences between the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere has been reality testing. The, the, the right hemisphere is literally um, neuropsychologically demonstrably more in touch with reality. Um, it, its perception is superior in quality across all uh, modes of perception. Its judgments about what it is perceiving are more reliable. Um, its attention to the world is broader. Its emotional intelligence is hugely greater. And its cognitive intelligence, surprisingly to many people, is also greater than that of the left. I uh, can't substantiate all of that now because it's uh, 300 pages in the book that I'm currently writing. <laughs> but but let's, just, let's just accept that that is the case. Um, now, if that's the case, externalizing the left hemisphere is not a very good move. And in the past, the right hemisphere has always been a good counterbalance to this. So there is a piece of research that I report in the Master and His Emissary, which I think is illuminating, um, in which, once again, uh, for a period of 15 to 20 minutes, subjects had one hemisphere um, at a time, uh, knocked out effectively and they were asked to comment on a syllogism and to remind you a syllogism is a series of statements, two statements that lead to a conclusion, a third conclusion. The typical example of these is all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, Socrates is mortal. Now these syllogisms had a twist in them which was that one of the 
premises, that's to say one of the two first statements was correct and the other one was not. So, for example, um, all monkeys climb trees, this is true, the porcupine is a monkey, this is not true, um, and the conclusion, well, porcupines climb trees, is this true or not? Now, <laughs> um, annoyingly, between you and me, there are porcupines that climb trees, but we have to just put that out of our mind for the purposes of understanding this experiment. Because it was done in Russia, and both the experimenters and the subjects didn't know that porcupines climb trees. So they asked people in these three conditions, in the normal intact state with both hemispheres operating, with just the left hemisphere and with just the right hemisphere. And when they asked the person in the normal state, is the conclusion true? They say, well, no, because the porcupine is not a monkey. When they'd asked the same person, the very same person, in the left hemisphere only state, they said, of course, it's true. And say, well, but hang on, don't you know a porcupine is not a monkey? Well, yes. So is it true? Yes. Why? Because that's what it says on this sheet of paper. And when they asked the right hemisphere, the right hemisphere said, well, of course, it's nonsense. So in the right hemisphere only state and in the normal state, we always have recourse to reality. But in the left hemisphere state, what matters is what is on this sheet of paper. And that may have resonances for you and many of the viewers because of course we constantly find in life now that the the piece of paper the checklist the 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 form that gets filled out seems to be more important than the event it describes um, and this is the world we're going into now what i'm really saying there is that the left hemisphere is out of touch with reality and the if we are externalizing a system that just churns away on the sense of this is internally consistent, um, my algorithm says that this is what follows and these things need to cohere, we simply are setting up something which is running too fast, which is much too stupid. Um, it's not artificial intelligence, it's artificial stupidity, which will effectively destroy us. And the most intelligent and wise thing we can do is to check it. I don't mean <laughs> add more tick boxes. I mean, slow this process down, ask a lot of questions, but I can't see that being likely to happen.